It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Religion Today with Martin Tanner, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. Today, the second part of our two-part series about why science shows great amounts of evidence for the existence of God. I've been told by a few people who listened to last week's program that I didn't do a great job of distilling this down into easily understandable information. So I'm going to recap a bit and see if I can do a better job by summarizing last week's information and then jumping ahead to today. The simplest way I think, to to talk about life and why it requires some kind of intelligence behind it is maybe to start out with its requirements. To have life, you've got to have oxygen. How many places is oxygen found in the universe? Well, let's start off with the solar system. How many planets have oxygen? Um, The Earth does. How many other planets? Well, none have oxygen in a manner that would sustain life, as far as we know. How about water? Water is required for life. Now, water is chemically H2O, so oxygen is part of water. But you also have to have hydrogen plus oxygen to get water. And water might be found in places other than the Earth. It's possible that it's been on Mars or perhaps Venus, but Mars for certain, Venus maybe. But other planets, no. So even within our solar system, the requirements for life are uniquely found on Earth perhaps on Mars, but really no other place that's likely. You would also have to find minerals and nutrients for life to sustain life. You would also have to have radiation from the sun, which creates just the right temperature. That would be, for most life, 32 degrees Fahrenheit approximately to about 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I I realize that life exists in much colder and much warmer temperatures than those, but not much and not in great variety. So here we have this little narrow band of 80 or 90 degrees in which life can exist. Now, in our solar system alone, you have places where the temperature is absolute zero, minus 460 degrees Fahrenheit, up to at the sun, 
10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So within that wide variation of temperatures, you have this little 80 or 90 degree sliver of temperature that has to exist also in a place where there's oxygen and also in a place where there's water and nutrients so that life could possibly exist. These are unique circumstances because the sun is a star that provides just that right amount of energy. And the earth is the right size to provide the right amount of gravity. Because if gravity is too great, life as we know it cannot exist because it would be crushed. You also, if gravity is too light, have a circumstance where life does not work well because it flies away, flies off into into space or, or some other uh, place. It It's difficult. The parameters for life are very small. If someone went to Jupiter somehow, you would be crushed instantly. Maneuvering on the moon or some smaller planet is somewhat difficult because of the lack of gravitational pull. So what are the odds that all of these things would come together? Just the right temperature, just the right distance from the sun, just the right amount of water and oxygen and minerals, all of those things, gravity, that they all come together. Well, that is a very, very unique set of circumstances just to find a place where life could exist. And then you have the question of if you found all those unique circumstances, where does life come from? Now, there was this fascinating series of experiments called the Miller-Urey experiment. It culminated in one final experiment in 1952 at the University of Chicago in which these famous scientists, Stanley Miller and Harold Urey, who were also, by the way, one of whom anyways, um, Stan Miller was involved in all of the work that led up to the atomic bomb so that World War II could be ended. He had done this earlier. But in 1952, Miller and Urey were involved in work to show that if you just had the oceans and all of the stuff that were in the oceans, that a bunch of lightning strikes from the clouds could create a number of amino acids, which would then somehow form into life. Now, that sounded really interesting at the time. And by adding a great deal, frankly, more electricity than you would find sustained on Earth, and by utilizing a number of substances in the experiments that, frankly, scientists today don't think existed in this primordial ocean on on the Earth, they were able to create a number of amino acids, some say up to 20 in their published uh, papers. They talked about five and possibly one more. But the point is, even those were something that could 
be used for life, but they were not life. And one of the most fascinating questions that has never been answered by those who claim to be atheists is how do you get that jump from non-life to life? And here's the crux of the matter. When you get non-life to life, when, when you finally have life, it comes with something called information. And that information is in the form of DNA. DNA is this double helix. You can visualize it, visualize it as two corkscrews or maybe a spiral staircase. It looks a lot like a spiral staircase because it has rungs across it. And DNA has all of the information for every single living thing, whether it's a one-celled animal or humans or elephants, any animal form, any living thing has DNA. And what do we know about DNA? It takes intelligence And that intelligence is what allows a functioning cell to exist. Let me say that a little bit different way. DNA is like computer code. It tells cells how to work and how to function. Without DNA, you do not have life. Without DNA, you do not have life. When we come back from our break, we're going to talk a little bit more about DNA and how intelligence is the only explanation that we have for DNA and for life itself. This is the second in a two-part series on how intelligent design or the existence of God can be demonstrated, or at the very least, uh, the evidence supports it. Stay tuned. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Religion Today with Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We're back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. If you have a question or comment about this week's program, feel free to send me an email. Send it to martinstanner at gmail.com, martinstanner at gmail.com. I'll be happy to respond. DNA is where we left off. What is DNA? It is a series of four kinds of acid that are combined together into this beautiful little double helix which looks like a spiral staircase or maybe a corkscrew visually. And it has information that tells whatever life it is, a one-celled animal or complex creature like a horse or a human being or an elephant, whatever it is, in every single cell of that particular organism, that living organism, you have the same DNA. Now, what's remarkable about the DNA is that it is digital information. It's digital information, just like computer code. 
In other words, every living cell works like a computer. Now, some may say, oh, Martin, you're blowing the whole, <laughs> the, the whole argument here because computers aren't alive. Ah, but if you go back to who designed the computer chip, you would say there was an intelligence behind it. Or at least Apple and Microsoft would certainly think so. And if you look at anything that has digital information, you find that behind it, there is some kind of intelligence designing it. And that's the crux of the whole thing, because how do you get digital information in a double helix DNA randomly, spontaneously forming from some pre-existing inanimate stuff. You just can't. Building a living organism requires information and not just random information. It requires an incredible amount of information. Compare it to a book with organized information in the form of letters and sentences and paragraphs and pages till you get to the conclusion of the book after many, many chapters. Compare that kind of information with a pile and a jumble of alphabet letters, maybe in a wheelbarrow or something. That's the difference. One is intelligent design, the book, and the other one is just a random pile of information. Try to get all the alphabet, all the letters dumped into a wheelbarrow to somehow spontaneously assemble by chance into a book. And you sort of get the idea that there must be some kind of an intelligence behind all forms of life. Now, single-celled organisms have a lot of information. They have a lot of information in their DNA, but every time you get something more complex, it's not just a little bit more complex. It requires an immense amount of additional information. Maybe I can explain what I'm trying to convey here by comparing maybe a bicycle with a current Bugatti or Ferrari turbocharged incredible sports car. What would the owner's manual look like for a bicycle? And what would the description of the bicycle be like? Even though that alone requires some kind of intelligence, you don't just find a bicycle in the woods. It still has fairly simple parts. It, it has two wheels. It has a chain or pedals handlebars, a way to steer it. And that's about it. Then when you get to the complexity of modern sports cars, you have something that's thousands and thousands and thousands of times more complex. Both require information, but the modern day sports car isn't just a little bit more complex than the bicycle or Model T. It's maybe a million times more complex or 10 million or 100 million times more complex. It's incredible. Now, how do you get by random chance 
from the bicycle to the sports car, which I will use as an analogy that the bicycle would be like the single-celled animal and the sports car would be like humans. How do you get there? By random chance? By random mutation? Well, the problem with that idea is that even if you accept all of the numbers that science offers and say that there has been 4.5 billion years since the Earth was created until now, that is not enough time. 4.5 billion years is not enough time for random chance to go from a single-celled animal to humans. Another example might be it's not nearly enough time for single-celled animals to somehow mutate and increase in complexity to form fish and amphibians and finally mammals, and then for those mammals to morph into whales and then for the whales to be in the ocean. Again, that's just something that there isn't enough time for. And so how do you get to a place where you can describe where life came from? You have to have an intelligence behind it. You have to presuppose that God exists. Now, some people will say, oh, I've seen my kid's textbook that talks about human evolution. We know that human evolution, as described by Darwin, is impossible. The fossil record does not support it. As a matter of fact, in 19, clear back in 1980, Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould said that even neo-Darwinism, meaning changed Darwinism, is effectively dead. He said it was impossible. It did not explain life. It did not explain life. Now, one of the most important points that shows that a slow, steady series of mutations does not work is what we find in the fossil record in the Cambrian period. It's referred to often in scientific circles as the Cambrian explosion. In the small little slice of time that would be less than 3% of the history of the world, you had this explosion of all life, all the major forms of life that we have today, well, almost all, happen during this small little 3% period. That does not look like slow, steady mutations resulting in changes. It just doesn't work that way. One of the most fascinating books on this entire subject, which I highly recommend, is a book by Stephen C. Mayer, who uh, just just a brilliant guy. He has a PhD from Cambridge, and he lives in Seattle. He wrote a book called Darwin's Doubt, and in it he goes through and chronicles in detail and describes how life requires intelligence just the way computer code requires intelligence to explain it. Things just don't happen randomly in a productive way. Things require intelligence for them 
to result in the complex actions in thinking that life is described by. And those are some of the best arguments for the existence of God to make to an atheist. For those of us who are believers, we understand God through more subtle means, meaning prayer and scriptures and the like. Join me again next week. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.